Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You're listening to the Circe Podcast Network. I'm Joshua Gibbs, and this is Proverbial the podcast where we explore the wisdom of the ages as it comes to us in Proverbs, by which I mean wise sayings a man may live by if he's not so arrogant as to think himself special. Episode 128, Hot Topic. Today's proverb comes from Boethius, once again. I'll read it twice. Evil is nothing. Once more, evil is nothing. This is not a standard proverb. It's probably not what you think of when you think of a proverb. A great many proverbs are self-evident. You hear them, they intuitively make sense, immediately make sense, like the grass is always greener on the other side. When you hear that proverb in context, you immediately know what it means. You know what aspect of human psychology is being referred to. But the first time you hear evil is nothing, it strikes you as very strange. It does not seem intuitively true. What do you mean evil is nothing? Are you saying that evil doesn't exist? That there are no evil people? That evil is only an illusion. What do you mean evil doesn't exist? I have seen evil. Do you mean the Third Reich wasn't evil? Do you mean Chairman Mao wasn't evil? What do you mean evil is nothing? I have felt the effects of evil in my heart. It is very real. I have seen evil destroy the lives of my friends and family. What do you mean evil is nothing? The idea that evil is nothing is, by this point, an ancient Christian concept. Boethius is not the first Christian intellectual to put this idea forward. Most Christians originally or first encounter the idea that evil is nothing in the work of St. Augustine. 
the way that I often explain this idea, and it is a metaphysical idea, it's a theological idea, it's not common sense. The way that I explain this to my students, and if you've read How to Be Unlucky, you've encountered this explanation in there as well, is that evil is sort of like the crack in the Liberty Bell. And we can refer to the crack in the Liberty Bell as part of the bell. But if we say that the crack is part of the bell, we really need to explain what we mean, because the crack in the Liberty Bell is not part of the bell the way that your thumb is part of your hand, or the way that your nose is part of your face, or that the hood is part of a car. When I say that my thumb is part of my hand, I mean that my thumb is integral to my hand. My hand is not complete without my thumb. It would also be possible for me to lose my thumb and for my hand to enter into a state of corruption. Now, this is not true of the Liberty Bell's relationship with the very famous crack. You could not separate the crack from the bell. You could not have the bell over here and the crack over there. You could not put the crack in the Liberty Bell in a museum. That's the most famous crack in the history of the world. If you were to separate the crack from the bell, you would make the bell whole. And so the crack in the Liberty Bell is a corruption of the bell. It's an absence of the bell. The most recognizable feature, the most recognizable part, so to speak, is that portion of the bell where the bell is not. That's not true of your thumb or your nose or the hood of a car. The hood of the car is part of the car, but it's not the absence of the car. Now, the crack is an observable feature of the bell, but the fact that it's an observable feature doesn't mean that the crack has an independent existence from the bell. The crack is sort of a cancer or a parasite, you might say. It feeds on the bell. It can't exist without the bell. In the same way, evil has no private existence apart from good things. Evil is nothing in as much as evil is non-existence, in the same way that the crack is a sort of non-existence. Evil is not a functional aspect of anything, the way that your thumb is a functional aspect of your hand, or the hood is a functional aspect of the car. Evil is not a power. It is a lack of power. It is not a thing, but a nothing. And nothing comes from nothing, which means that evil does not accomplish anything. It only degrades other things, tears them apart. Now, as I stated at the beginning of this show, this is really more of a metaphysical idea. It's more of a theological concept. And the theme of the show is Proverbs. It's proverbial wisdom. And a proverb is a distillation of experience. A proverb is a broad survey of reality and a distillation of reality into a well-driven nail of truth. So does evil is nothing count as a proverb? Now, while evil is nothing is not immediately true, obviously true, like the grass is greener on the other side, I 
genuinely believe that the idea that evil is nothing does account for an awful lot of the human experience. I don't believe that this is a metaphysical idea that really has no bearing on the visible world, that it's merely a truth to be recognized in the intelligible world, as Plato calls it, and yet it has no real bearing on the visible world. I believe this idea explains an awful lot about contemporary culture. So let me explain. In the last few weeks, I've turned my attention in an article that I published on the Cersei website to the subject of dark things. By dark things, I mean dark music, dark movies, dark TV shows. And this is all a result of teaching the consolation of philosophy in class. And the idea that evil is nothing occurs in the consolation. And I need to, whenever I'm presenting this to high school students, I need to give it a kind of practical angle. I need to relate this back to the world that teenagers have experienced. So I asked my students, what is dark music? What is a dark movie? What is the styling of darkness? How do you know something involves the dark aesthetic? What makes the dark aesthetic? And my students were initially hesitant to answer this question, I think because once someone corners you on it or once someone demands that you justify it or explain it, it becomes a little embarrassing. I was very into dark things back during high school. I liked dark music. I liked dark movies. There weren't really dark TV shows at the time. And if you had asked me why I liked dark things, if I was being coy and evasive, I would have said, because they're interesting. If I had been honest, though, had you asked me why I like dark things, I would have said, because they're cool. And I do believe that this is true. I think that dark things are very cool. There's a sense in which, according to a certain understanding of coolness, all cool things are a little dark. Cool typically involves some kind of cozying up to the other side. Cool is sometimes described as a hidden knowledge. But when we describe cool as a hidden knowledge, I do believe that the object of that knowledge is rather standard across time. And the object of cool knowledge is the other side. It's the other team. And to be cool is to profess some affinity or sympathy for the opposition. I don't think that cool merely entails or merely means criticizing your own side. I don't think that's what self-criticism or self-analysis is about. So if you're a Republican, I don't think that criticizing the Republican Party is cool. I don't think that criticizing your own team necessarily involves cozying up to the other side. If you're a Catholic, I don't think that criticizing the modern Catholic Church 
is cool. I don't think it's a betrayal to criticize your own side. There's a difference between criticizing your own side and flirting with the other side. And cool almost always involves flirtation with the other side. It doesn't involve completely going over to the other side. Cool means staying on your side and making everyone nervous by how comfortable you are with the opposition. The coolest kids, for example, in a Christian school are always going to be the ones that are the most worldly. Now, when I say cool, I don't necessarily mean popular. The popular kids and the cool kids might be different. And there might be some virtuous young man who is cherished by everyone at your school, students and teachers alike. And we might say that the student is great, but I don't think that student is cool in the true sense of that word. The coolest kids are the ones who are the most reserved about the legitimacy of your cause. The coolest kids are always the one, they're always the ones that are most sympathetic and most visibly similar to that which is opposed to your side. In high school, I listened to a lot of dark music. I listened to a lot of music. I bought a lot of CDs. I had a very diverse taste in music, but I did like dark things. I remember buying Marilyn Manson CDs when I was in high school. If you don't know anything about Marilyn Manson, a quick Google Images search will tell you everything that you need to know. Back in the mid-90s, Marilyn Manson put out a record called Antichrist Superstar. It was a hard metal album, really disturbing sort of cover, the sort of cover that makes uh, pious old ladies shy away in fear. Buying a record called Antichrist Superstar for a Christian kid, like the essence of cool, it was making nice with the other side, as is any sort of Christian affinity for dark things dark in the conventional sense of the word. And in a conventional sense of the word, I think dark is an affinity for death. It's adopting the stylings of death, culture of death. It's the glorification of death. Cool things make death sexy, sleek. Cool things make death and an affinity for death seem sophisticated. And there's a sense in which death is the ultimate rebellion. The wages of sin is death, and sin is rebellion. And so death sits at the rather far end of rebellion, inasmuch as you want to make nice with death, as opposed to treating death as your enemy. And death is most certainly the enemy of God. Sin is the enemy of God. The comeuppance for sin is the enemy of God. Christ comes to defeat death to trample down death by way of his own death and to defeat death so that we can live eternally. So for the Christian kid who expresses an affinity for dark things, for things that are resistant to joy, peace, tranquility, kindness, long-suffering, 
there's an open defiance of the Christian ethos. The Christian ethos is loving, caring, generous, honest. Joy is a Christian virtue. Kindness is a Christian virtue. And dark things resist that. Dark things resist the orientation toward life, which is essential to Christianity. But I wanted to be cool, so I got into dark things. And I knew that my affinity for dark things, my love of dark things, would shock people. And there was a kind of delight I took in shocking Christian friends who were into that whole joy, kindness, light, life thing. Because death is really the other team. Death is the other side. Death is the enemy. And to adopt the stylings and the trappings of death and to listen to the sort of music and watch the sort of films that um, present death in this kind of sophisticated, uh, ultra-knowledgeable sort of way, as though death is the real story of the world. It gave me this sort of purchasing power over my peers. It made me feel superior to all of them. As a stylistic choice, the dark aesthetic is not simply black shirt and black slacks. No one thinks of (laughs) Olive Garden waiters as gothy, right? Virtually every waiter in every mid-range restaurant in America wears a black shirt and black slacks. That's Cheesecake Factory, whatever. And you don't walk into the Cheesecake Factory and see waiters dressed all in black and think, oh, it's kind of dark. It's kind of goth. No one thinks that. So it's not just black clothes. The dark aesthetic is skulls. It's sparkly skulls, pink skulls, rainbow skulls. It's black hair, black nails, black eyes, Ripped up clothes that look like they've been decomposing in a casket. Dark TV shows, dark films tend to revolve around a kind of cult of death. The glamorization and adoration of death is carried out in many ways. Often in fantasy uh, fantasy shows, I would say. Where there are dead characters, characters who look dead. Or just characters that are spiritually dead and who behave without any sort of conscience. Serial killer shows, serial killer films, books. Dark shows tend to be rather predictable, though. The thrill of a dark show is something shocking. So in a normal show, in a normal TV show, in a normal book, a guy goes hunting for deer. In a dark show, a guy goes hunting for people. And that guy is the hero. In a normal book, a guy falls in love with a girl. In a dark book, a guy falls in love with a dead girl, with a zombie. In a normal movie, people eat food. In a dark movie, people drink human blood. Maybe they have a reason for it. Maybe they don't. In a normal love song, a guy sings to a girl, to a beautiful girl. In a dark love song, a depressed guy sings to a depressed girl. Dark things are never all that surprising. They're rather easy to generate. It's easy to generate the idea for a dark story for a dark show you just take something normal 
and you twist it. You take something normal and you pervert it. You don't really add anything on to what is normal. You bend what is normal. And you make what is normal abnormal. Evil is nothing inasmuch as evil is parasitical. And I think that you see the parasitical nature of evil when you look at the stylings of things that aim to glamorize death. They're not creative. They can be shocking inasmuch as they are perversions of normal things. You don't expect perversions. And in that, perhaps, a dark show takes you back. But dark things feed on normal things. Dark things only shock because normal things exist. And there's a thrill that comes from embracing dark things only because there are normal people out there. There are productive people out there who want you to behave differently. And they're surprised that you would so willingly choose a life of non-productivity and non-fruitfulness. There are people out there who want the best for you. And in wanting the best, want others to be like them. But people that are into dark things generally don't want other people to be into dark things as well. You want to be the only one. There's a bigger thrill you get out of being the only one or one of the only ones who has cozied up to the other side. When everyone has cozied up to the other side, it's no longer shocking. And so this is the same distinction that Socrates makes in the Republic when he distinguishes between virtue and vice. He says the virtuous man wants everyone else to be like him. The vicious man doesn't. The thief does not want anyone else in the world to be a thief. The more people who are thieves, the more protection the average person enacts against thieves. The more thieves there are in the world, the harder it is for any thief to get away with thieving. The more thieves there are in the world, the more the thief has to worry that his own things are going to be stolen. And so the vicious man doesn't want anyone else to be like him. He wants to be the only one because there's more people to feed on. There's more people to prey on if you're the only one. Dark things need normal things to exist in order to be shocking. And yet the people who like dark things, I think, know for a fact, know for certain just how predatory their preferences are, their aesthetics preferences are given how little you want the rest of the world to be dark. Like, if you're into dark things, if you're into dark TV shows, if you're into dark music, if you're into the sort of shock that comes from willingly choosing a fruitless, unproductive life and resisting all of the normal things out there that are established for their productive qualities, you don't want everyone else to be like you. If you like dark things... You don't want the 
people that make your car to be into dark things. You want the people who make your car to be as normal as possible. You want the guy flying the passenger jet to be as normal as possible. You want the guy performing surgery to be as normal as possible. It doesn't matter how much black eye makeup you wear and how many twisted serial killer TV shows you've seen. You don't want your pilots into that kind of thing. You don't want automakers into that kind of thing. You need everyone else to be normal so that you can be productive in your pursuit of dark things. Because if the automaker is dark, you're probably going to die because your car is not going to be normal. If the plane isn't normal, you're not going to survive to pursue dark things. You need everyone out there to be normal. You need everyone that produces food sold in the grocery store to be as normal as possible. And you will, as someone who likes dark things, prey upon and exploit the normality of other people. You will feed on the productivity of the healthy-minded, normal airplane pilot, automaker, bread baker. You need those people to be normal. But you need them to be normal so that you can exploit them. You need... If you're going to shock people, you need them to be normal and productive enough to be shockable. If other people are not shockable, you can't prey on them. They have nothing to offer you if they're not normal. And in that way, evil is nothing. It is not productive. The stylings of evil are not productive. The aesthetics of evil is not productive. It's bent back on itself. And I think, to be fair, that most people grow out of that affinity for dark things. It doesn't last. It's more typical in youth. It's more typical in high school than it is anywhere else. And yeah, I mean, you find 50-year-old men wear mascara and listen to Depeche Mode. But not many. It's far more of a youthful thing. And I think that many people grow out of an affinity for dark things because they come to take delight and satisfaction and contentment in productive things. Like their families. Like their children. Like their jobs. And so perhaps later in life, you still get a thrill out of hearing some dark song come on the radio that you heard when you were younger. But the enjoyment that you get out of that later in life is really more of a nostalgia or an enjoyment of how far you've come than it is anything that genuinely speaks to your soul. And again, I think that Life, the productivity of life, the productivity demanded of people often weans them off of the desire to eternally shock people. Because after you've amassed something in the world, after you've created something in the world, you want to conserve it. After you've got a family and a job, you want to conserve those things. And you're afraid, you become fearful of all those things that are attempting to exploit the things that you love just in order to shock you.
hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.